says that there are spies in our midst, that there are England's genissaries, that their history is a continuity of brutal treason against the Irish people. Hello and welcome to The Irish at War. I'm your host, David Cummins. Today, I'm talking with historian Sean Gannon about what happened to the RIC after the War of Independence. Where did all those black and tans and auxiliaries go? A large number of them ended up in the Palestinian police force. And we're going to talk about the Irishmen who joined that force also. But first, I want to say a quick thank you to all of my sponsors on Patreon. Thank you so much for your generosity means the world to me. COVID-19 is still spreading around this country and many other countries around the world. So please stay at home, stay safe, wash your hands and be considerate. Hopefully it'll be over soon. But enough of that. Let's get to the interview with Sean Gannon. Just a heads up, there were some technical difficulties with the sound in this one. We think it might have been Sean's headset began to pop and rattle. So after the first hour, there are sporadic pops and bangs as if someone is tapping on the keyboard or just a loud pop. So I tried my best to edit them all out. Once I started noticing it, we went back, re-recorded the questions, did them again, but still that noise was there. So I tried to edit most of them out. It shouldn't be too annoying. And like I said, they're sporadic. It's not constant. Apologies for that. Okay, so, Sean, introduce yourself, your work, and why you chose to work in this field. My name is Sean Gannon. I'm historian of 20th century Ireland and the British Empire, and particularly their kind of intersections and crossovers here. I'm particularly interested in Irish civilian imperial service rather than military. I think Ireland's role in the empire militarily was, has been well covered for a long time now, particularly Irish involvement in the British Army from the sort of beginning of the 19th century. But civilian service was more overlooked, particularly after 1922, and that's the focus of my own research, the main focus anyway. That was something that really wasn't touched on at all or overlooked or ignored, I think, it didn't really fit in neatly with the traditional nationalist narrative of Irish history that Irish men and, and laterally Irish women were still going out serving in things like the British colonial service right up until the colonial office closed in 1966. I came to it, my PhD was on the Irish involvement in the policing of the Palestine mandate and I came to that by chance really. I met somebody I was sent to interview somebody in Waterford in 2003. He was donating a load of photographs his sister had taken in Belgium. She was a nurse there. And then he started talking about where he was at the time. Turned out he was in Palestine as a policeman. And that, that kind of stuck with me. And when I came then to pick a PhD subject a couple of years later, I decided to look into that. And I discovered that he was one of about 550 Irish men who went out to Palestine at that time and joined another 150 or 200 or so serving in the police forces there. So that was my PhD. Then the book, in the book, which came out in 2019, I kind of broadened out from 
policing in Palestine, to Irish involvement in colonial policing in general, and to Irish participation in civilian, other civilian imperial services like the Indian Civil Service, the Colonial Service, the Medical Service, Legal Service, Administrative Service, etc. And I look a little bit at land political service as well. Wow, okay. And what's the name of your book? The name of my book is uh, The Irish Imperial Service, Policing Palestine and Administering the Empire, 1922-1966, part of the Cambridge Imperial History series, published in 2019. And so you basically talk about the the civilian service, really, so the police forces. Yeah. Okay. Poli- well, it, it's, I start with, the, I, I mean, the first three chapters are basically based on my PhD, so I'm talking about policing in Palestine. But Palestine was only one place in which Irish men served as colonial policemen. There'd been a link uh, through the RIC with Ireland at the middle of the 19th century. And then I look also at, there were other civil, I mean, the British colonial service was composed of various different constituent services, like the administrative service, the medical service, the legal service, there was an engineering service, an educational service, for instance, and Irish men and women served um, in all of those, uh, as I say, from 1922 right up until 1966, the end of the imperial era. Right, okay. And so... Let's start at home first before we bring out to Palestine, because I remember reading that the police force in Palestine had learned a lot of their lessons from the RIC. And so let's talk about the RIC first. I read before that while the job of policeman was and still is a very respectable job in Ireland, in most places really, when is it that the RIC really become further estranged from the local Irish populace? Well, the RIC probably started out as estranged in the first place in the 19th century. It was set up, essentially constituted in 1822. And unlike the police forces in Britain, which started to be set up at around the same time, it, ha- it was basically a centralised force. It was answerable to the government, not the local authorities, and it also had a coercive function. It was basically Dublin Castle's coercive arm. So it was used as a, a government enforcers during the Tide War, especially the Land War. They were involved in evictions and stuff like that, and they were also used to kind of quell nationalist agitation here, most famously. They were involved in suppressing the Fenian uprising in 1867, and that's where they got the royal title for. By the 20th century, though, the turn of the 20th century, they had started to become more civilianized, what we usually call, because of a very influential article, domesticated here in Ireland. They really weren't doing so much of the coercive stuff. They were involved in more civil duties than like checking weights and measures or checking dog licenses or collecting the census, stuff like that. But they, they did still keep an involvement in political surveillance and they would have been involved in arrest and stuff like that. So that that was always an element. So they, they were always demonised in the advanced nationalist imagination. But for most of the country, by, say, the the outbreak of the First World War, they were basically seen as a, a civilian force, and relations were relatively good. 
when things turned, the alienation to which you refer occurred in the aftermath of the Easter Rising in 1916, because that gave rise to an upsurge in nationalist feeling. And because the RIC still had a hand in political surveillance and, and political policing to an extent, uh, ire turned on them. And as early as September 1916, you can see the RIC reports, the county reports, saying that they, they're starting to discern uh, a less friendly attitude amongst the people towards them. And this gets worse. It's kind of like this incremental alienation from that point for the rest of 1916, throughout 1917 and 1918, you see in the report more evidence of a kind of an increasingly hostile attitude on the part of the population. Where things really kick off in terms of alienation is in 1919, on April the 10th. In the Dáil, de Valera calls for a boycott of the RIC. He makes a speech which I think is possibly one of the most faithful in our modern history. He says that they're spies in our midst, that they're England's genissaries, that their history is a continuity of brutal treason against the Irish people, that they're the mainstay of the ascendancy, basically demonises them and says they shouldn't be tolerated socially. What that actually involved was spelt out two weeks later, again in the goal. What did this boycott consist of? boycott, excuse me, consist of, it was to consist of things like you weren't to salute them in the street, you weren't to return their salutations, you were to have no social intercourse with them, you were to not invite them to social functions, dances, weddings, sports fixtures, anything like that, and if they turned up at something like a dance that you were at, you were expected to leave. Intermarriage was discouraged between the people and the RIC. Businesses were basically only to conduct essential business. Everything else was to stop. So that started in April 1919, went on through the year, but really got nasty the following year in June 1920 when the IRA General Headquarters basically issued an order to IRA units around the country to, I think it was, stimulate and support this boycott. And things got quite nasty after that. There was intimidation throughout 1919, but it, got, it really ramped up in the summer of 1920, there was a lot of violence. And it wasn't directed just at RIC, but at their families and at people who were involved with them, both personally, shall we say, socially and professionally. So businesses were told to stop all business with them, all commercial relations with them. And servants, for instance, barrack servants who worked in RIC barracks were all told to resign their jobs under threat of violence, sexual violence in some cases, so the alienation, just to recap, kind of began in the aftermath of the Easter Rising, then ramped up in April of 1919 with the call for a boycott, and then got particularly nasty in the summer of 1920. Yeah, wow, that's pretty comprehensive. Once that ostracization began, we get somewhere in the region of 52 RIC resignations a week, and obviously they cannot fulfil those numbers. So... The RIC are supplemented by an auxiliary unit, more commonly known as the Black and Tans, and then later the Auxiliaries. But first, let's start with the Black and Tans, and just tell me who they were, and let's dispel some of those myths that they were shell-shocked, bloodthirsty veterans and criminals. Okay, yeah, the, the ostracization, which was comprehensive indeed, like David Fitzpatrick said that it took on the kind of character of a national crusade, and Charles Townsend, in his most recent book, called it a social war. The 
resignations started almost immediately. But the 52 a week, that didn't come until the summer of 1920. But from April 1919 on, there were resignations, significant resignations from before. And in addition to that, recruitment dried up essentially in Ireland because people didn't want to, rec- people didn't, it was no longer an attractive job. Because of the intimidation, people didn't want to take the job. So you not only had a kind of a manpower shortage caused by resignations, but also they couldn't replace not just those who resigned, but also people who retired in the normal course. Of, of events in the normal course of their lives, people who'd done their service. So by the end of 1919, I think about 12% of the force had gone and hadn't been replaced. So this manpower crisis uh, had to be sorted out in some way, and they decided that the only way to do it was to extend recruitment to Britain, um, because it was obvious even by the autumn of 1919 that the that the recruitment in Ireland was irrecoverably compromised. So on the 27th of December 1919, they made the decision to extend recruitment for the first time ever outside of Ireland to Britain, and they opened recruitment offices in London, uh, Liverpool and Glasgow. And if you didn't live in any of those places, you could actually be recruited through your local British Army recruitment office. The first of these arrived, the first of them were recruited on the 2nd of January 1920 and they began to arrive from the 7th of January onward and they came maybe about 100 a month until June. Then after that, because recruitment hadn't been what they expected, it wasn't as good, they doubled an RIT constable's basic salary in July and that then led to pretty much an influx of what they called English recruits, even though they weren't all English, of course. Uh, who were they? Yeah, they were basically ex-servicemen. The great majority of them were demobilised members of the British Armed Forces who were basically looking for work. Uh, they were a very diverse group, like any any group of... There were 8,000 of them recruited in Britain eventually and about 2,000 here. They were a very diverse group. They came from across Britain, across different classes. But the typical black and tan if you like, the average black and tan was an unmarried man in his mid-twenties from London or from the home counties area. He was working-class background and he'd served in the First World War. He joined basically for economic reasons. Basically, he'd been demobilised and was looking for a job. In October 1920, I think it was, the Manchester Guardian sent a reporter to the RIC depot in Gormanstown and... They and he, the man interviewed several of them there, and I think the expression used in his article was unemployment was the pinch that had driven them to this hazardous job. So basically, they joined for economic reasons in the main. The myths to which you refer are basically part of the traditional nationalist narrative uh, concerning them, and it's thought to explain their behaviour by saying that they were basically, you know, there were several expressions, jailbirds and down and outs, dirty tools for a dirty job, the sweepings of the British uh, prison system, the scum of London's underworld. These are terms, and it, it, these date from, some of those date from practically the time. I mean, they were almost immediately being classed as criminals uh, who had been sent here to do Britain's dirty work. But this wasn't true. 
I mean, a criminal record was essentially a bar to recruitment. In the case of the auxiliaries, which, you know, were responsible for most of the atrocities that we generally attribute to the Black and Tan, they basically needed a police character reference of good or above to get in in the first place. So they weren't, they weren't criminals at all. A few bad eggs probably got through in the Black and Tans, and in the auxiliaries, David Grant, who runs the auxiliaries.com website, he's done amazing research, really comprehensive research on the force. And I think he found four of them, four auxiliaries, had had previous criminal convictions, so they slipped through the net. But basically, the idea that they were criminals, the sweeping of the British prison system wasn't, wasn't true at all. The idea that they were brutal and, you know, violent and basically bad people, that's not really true either. I mean, that stems from this brutalization thesis that they had been brutalized by their experience in the First World War. That's a relatively recent thing. That stems from a book by George, well, mainly when you see it in the literature today, it goes back to a book that was written about Germany by George Moss. He published it in 1990, and he said that he basically said that Nazism was partly the result of the brutalization of soldiers in the First World War, who then, you know, took positions in Weimar, Germany, and so on and so forth. And that then was applied to Ireland. Now, it's a very neat and kind of a common sense explanation for why black and tans would behave with brutality, you know, that they'd seen all this in the First World War and it dulled their moral sense and brutalized them in turn. But it's a theory and it's only a theory because basically to substantiate it, you'd need quantitative data on the personal wartime experiences of the black and tan and you'd need to, you know, draw conclusions from that. And we just don't have that data. So it remains a theory until we have data and we're unlikely to ever have that. Basically, when you look at the RIC registries, because we have those now, and you can look at the personal record. Now, they're only ledgers. They give an outline of each black and tan service. But, but you get some personal details which allows you to go back to the census and stuff like that. And when you look at the, go through those and go back to the census and look at these people, the vast majority of them were just ordinary, everyday men. There was nothing, they weren't criminals, they weren't brutes, they were just ordinary people. Yeah, they were just ordinary men who were in, I suppose, extraordinary times. And it wasn't that they were the criminals, but certainly given the times that they were in, they and the old RIC certainly did act like criminals as well. But you've mentioned the auxiliaries as well there. And as you said, those are the real bad guys of the War of Independence. And we know that they were ex-officers. But really, let's just have a quick chat about what they did and how they were kind of different from the Black and Tans. Yeah, the Black and Tans were, as I said, ex-servicemen, mainly from the British Army. They would have been rankers. The Auxiliary Division was set up in the summer of 1920, and it was composed of ex-officers, practically all of them. There were a couple of exceptions, but practically all of them were ex-officers from the British Armed Forces, uh, the Imperial Forces most from the army, some from the RAF and then the Navy and, so, and some of the other army, the other, um, like the Australian army and so on. 
in total, again, we have their records now, so we can see who they were. There were 2,131 of them recruited in total, but only 1,500 of them served at any one time. They were divided into 21 companies, each about 80 to 100 men strong. Again, like the Black and Tans, a very heterogeneous group drawn from all over Britain, mainly 10% were Irish, 90% from Britain or the wider empire. But the typical, the average auxiliary cadet was older than a black and tan. He was in his late 20s. He was a lieutenant in the British Army. Most of them did come from the British Army. Like the black and tan, he was from London or the home counties area, and he was unmarried. The reason he joined, again, motivations are hard to discern, but it would seem that economic reasons was probably the main reason Again, a lot of them demobilised after the war were looking for further employment. Uh, some also, there are some testimonies from auxiliaries in existence, and some of them are just looking for um, a less conventional military career. You know, they wanted a sense of adventure, and going over to, you know, Ireland to put down the Sinn Féiners seemed like something that they'd be interested in, better than another job or a more humdrum sort of army existence. The auxiliaries, they operated The Black and Tan? Yeah. They were yeah, more... the Black and Tan were basically permanent pensionable members of the RIC establishment. They were absolutely no different to the old RIC. So they basically were reinforcements and they were sent around to barracks to beef up the numbers of RIC there. So they worked as the RIC did. The auxiliary division was completely different. But again, it was kind of... 1,500 strong striking force broken down into these companies. There were 17 regular companies based around the country and they were to take the fight to Sinn Féin. They were highly mobile, well-armed, well-paid, kind of like a crack squad and they were to take the fight directly to the enemy. They were under the RIC umbrella. They were nominally members of the RIC. They were responsible to the county inspectors and the divisional commissioners, but they essentially operated quasi-autonomously. You know, they reported to Beggar's Bush, that's where the headquarters were, but even within the companies, they just basically operated as they saw fit. So they were part of the RIC, but unlike the Black and Tan, they weren't really, they didn't really operate under its command structure to any great extent. I suppose that kind of, it goes to show how powerful the nationalist propaganda was to say that, you know, the black and tans were the dregs of society and the auxiliaries almost get a free ride out of it because even though they are the real nasty bunch, the black and tans get get the finger pointed at them. Well, it's important to remember that the term black and tan so the Black and Tans were a distinct group. They were RIC, everyone knows the story. There was a uniform shortage when they were recruited, so they were sent out in various amalgams of police uniform and army khaki. So they were the Black and Tans. But after the auxiliaries arrived, they, that, the, ter- the term was applied to them a bit as well. I mean, they, the, the auxiliaries and the Black and Tans, they stood out. They had English accents for the most part. They didn't look like the RIC. You, you often see in kind of testimony from the time, the, the RIC had a height restriction, a height requirement, should I say, of five foot nine. That didn't apply to the black and tan. 
they were often a lot smaller. They they seemed to stand out even without even when they were all were in RIC uniform. Like that uniform issue was resolved by the end of 1920, so they would have looked no different uniform-wise in 1921 to the old RIC, but they still stood out. But within the public mind, the auxiliaries and the black and tans did become conflated, and you see the term black and tans being applied to, to both the auxiliaries and the black and tan. Basically, black, the term black and tan being used to describe an imported English policeman, if you like. And even in, in the halls of power, you see in correspondence, particularly when it comes to Palestine, even people like Churchill using the term black and tan to describe the auxiliaries or the auxiliaries and the RIC combined and stuff like that. Hamer Greenwood had to actually try and make the differentiation between them in the House of Commons because the confusion was so much. So when you hear people giving out about black and tan back then, they're often including the auxiliaries as well. And as you said there a minute ago, the auxiliaries were responsible for the most memorably notorious atrocities from the period that we have. Like, you'll see the black and tans get blamed for everything, say, the Lachnan brothers in November 1920, the murder and mutilation of them. That was auxiliary. The burning of Cork wasn't black and tans, it was the auxiliary. The shooting of Ellen Quinn, the curfew murders in Limerick, the mayor's murders, that, again, was auxiliary, not black and tans. Father Griffin, you know, auxiliary, not black and tans. So the confusion basically emerges from this conflation of the two, I think, in the Irish public mind and to an extent in, in the British official mind as well. Black and tan just became a word to describe, as I said, imported English soldiers here. It became an umbrella term for any Englishman serving <laughs> in the police force. It was just a black and yeah. tan. Yeah, and it remains the case today. I mean, we had this during the commemoration controversy you know, people talking about black and tans when they were referring to auxiliaries. I mean, it's still the case today. It just became this, as you say, kind of an umbrella term for an English policeman here. Absolutely. If you Google black and tans, often nine times out of ten, you'll get uh, pictures of auxiliaries, you know, because that term is just... And I've made that mistake a hundred times myself. But I suppose it's a better picture rather than just showing an RIC man. So, were the RIC's counterinsurgency tactics working by the end of the war? No. I mean, the regular RIC, that RIC in the Black and Tan, I mean, they were basically, you know, a spent force by the late autumn of 1920. RIC shouldn't have been involved really in counterinsurgency at that point at all. And this is a problem with all, you know, colonial police forces, if you like, that they have this dual function, that they're civil policemen in one sense, and this is what the, the RIC mainly were in the in the first decade and a half to two decades of the 20th century, going around performing civil police duties. And once you turn your attention to that, you, they, they lost their paramilitary function, the function that allowed them to put down the Fiji uprising. I mean, by 1919, they were basically a middle-aged force, too old, really, for the stresses and strains of a counterinsurgency. They were very ill-equipped in terms of weapons. Their weapons were basically obsolete. 
And in terms of the barracks, you were talking about, you mentioned earlier, the attacks on barracks in, in 1919 and 1920. I mean, RIC barracks in some cases were fortified buildings, but most are, there were 1,300 uh, police barracks around the country in 1919, and most of them were just modified houses. You know, they, they weren't defensive positions. And, and that's why they basically had to be, one of the reasons, not the only reason, but one of the reasons they had to be abandoned. So by 1920, the RIC, or by 1919, really wasn't in any shape to conduct a counterinsurgency. And the, the killings in 1919 and in early 1920 and the attacks on barracks, the sustained attacks on barracks in 1920, the first months of 1920, basically forced them into a sort of a defensive position. So even when Petey arrived here in May 1920, he despaired of the RIC, said, I think, expression users that they were hopelessly out of date. They really weren't fit for this. Now, Tudor did try to militarise them, update their weaponry, stuff like that, but their operations, even throughout 1920, were basically defensive. Their offensive operations were reprisals. And there was this distinction you see in Mark Sturgis's diaries talking about, you know, good and bad reprisals, the good reprisal being just shooting a Sinn Féinor. Now, extrajudicious judicially, I mean, and then bad reprisals, which are lootings and burnings and destruction of property, just basically running amok. And the RIC reprisals throughout 1920 were basically of the bad sort. And that really is a testament to force weakness rather than force strength. The other thing that was quite ironic, given the way that they were demonised by de Valera as the spies in our midst and the eyes and ears of the government and all the rest of it. Basically, this was shown, this reputation was shown to be wildly overblown by 1920. I mean, when McCready came over as well, he just thought, he found the RIC intelligence information useless and he basically decided that the military were going to have to start it from scratch themselves. So the RIC, well, in, in terms of counterinsurgency, the regular RIC weren't really operating on any kind of an efficient level from the start. So by the end of it, they were basically a spent force. The auxiliary division were a little bit different. They were seen, again, I can't remember what the exact expression Tom Barry said, you know, the supervisors, you know, invincible supervisors or something like that. I mean, that was proved not to be the case. But, and they did, they did, but they still were pretty effective in some senses. They did give the IRA a run for their money. They did get a lot of good intelligence information through their raids and so on. But... More often than not, these raids didn't turn anything up at all. And again, you're down then to kind of pointless reprisals, which again, don't really bring anything to the counterinsurgency fight except resentment in the population. So I, I think that basically, in, taken in its entirety, the RIC counterinsurgency was a failure. And that was recognised by, by May 1921. I think the government had stopped this nonsense that the whole thing was a policeman's job and they were basically starting to call it a war and that really was an acknowledgement that the police insurgency had ultimately failed right okay that's really interesting we know what happens then in 1921 the truce is called and the war ends but like in the first world war soldiers who had signed up are demobilized and sent back to wherever they've come from so that begs the question, what happened to the Black and Tans and the Auxiliaries after the First World War? 
where do they go? Do they go back home or do they go further afield? After the War of Independence? Yes. I mean, yeah, um, most black and tans, again, as far as we can see, it's, it's easier to track the ones that didn't go home. But so we're basically, we're, I, what I've used to try and track where black and tans and auxiliaries went after the War of Independence is by looking at records of births and marriages. So basically that would be marriages and births of their children seeing what occupations they're doing, seeing where they're living. And again, you're taking out the more unusual names. So I, I can't remember off the top of my head how large my sample size is, but it's several hundred, maybe 600, I think I tracked, of black and tans that remained in Britain. And most of them returned to the working class lives that they'd left to join the army for the First World War in the first place. So they went back to where they had been in 1914. A significant number of them, though, did leave, did go abroad. They went to other places in the empire because the situation as regarded employment for black and tans in Britain in 1922 wasn't very good at all. The black and tans had, by that stage, an internationally notorious reputation because what happened here during the War of Independence, particularly from the summer of 1920 on to July 1921, had been widely reported in the British press. Say Balbriggan, for instance, probably the first of the of the reprisals that got really widespread coverage in Britain. So people didn't want to employ them. Police forces, it had been expected that some of the British police forces, which were, were, kind of, were looking for men at the time in 1922, would take them on, but they didn't really want to be associated with policemen who'd had this reputation for brutality in the neighbouring island. And this extended to civilian employers as well. In March 1922, Black and Tans actually went on a public demonstration in Hyde Park to complain that they couldn't get jobs. Because any time that they mentioned their previous employment with the RIC, employers wouldn't take them at all. So many of them opted for imperial migration. So a resettlement branch was set up for the RIC, basically in, uh, working out of the Home Office. And Ormond Winter, who'd been Tudor's deputy in Dublin Castle, was put in charge of that. And that basically facilitated imperial migration for demobilised members of the RIC, or disbanded members, I should say, of the RIC. And according to their figures, because we have their figures, by the end of 1923, 1,436 former members of the RIC had gone to other parts of the empire under the auspices of this office, and the vast majority of them were British, black and tanned. So they went to places like Canada. I think about 600 went to Canada because there were various employment schemes in Canada that targeted ex-RIC. They also went to Australia, New Zealand, some to South Africa, some to the United States. I think the figure for the United States was about 219. And that was to the end of 1923. And by 1930, um, it's estimated that about another 500 had gone. So that's 2,000 of the around 8,000 black and tans had gone to live abroad. As regards the old RIC, again, many of them left here as well. I... Going through the pension records for the, for the old RIC at the moment, you can see on these records where they were being paid their pension in January of 1923. So that's anywhere between six months and a year after they were disbanded. 
And of the 8,000 or so that were disbanded in 1922, I've looked at the records for 6,500 so far, and 2,500 of those were living in Britain. They were being paid their RIC pension in Britain or further afield in other parts of the empire or the United States. Some of them were around uh, Europe and so on. Another 2,000 of that 6,500 are being paid their pensions in Northern Ireland or they're living in Northern Ireland. 1,600, sorry, 1,367 of those are in the RUC. So by the end of 1922, that number, over 1,300 ex-RIC had joined the RUC and they were serving with that force in Northern Ireland. So that's a huge, a huge number have left. Now, we do think that a lot of those old RIC did come back to Ireland in due course when they felt it was safer to do so, but many did remain away. Those are incredible numbers. Yeah. You had mentioned earlier on that a huge number, was it 550-odd, had transferred to Palestine, be a part of the British section of the Palestinian gendarmerie. Tell me a bit more about that. Okay. Britain had taken over Palestine, basically conquered it militarily in 1917-1918, and they were in line then to be given to be given a mandate uh, for it in 1922. But they were basically in situ since the end of 1917. First, it was a military administration, and from 1920, a civil administration. Now, the aim of the British mandate, British mandate was to be the facilitation of a Jewish national home there, and this caused increasing disquiet among the Arab communities in Palestine. So there were a couple of major incidents in 1920 and 1921, so it was decided that they needed, again, some sort of a, a crack squad, a striking force composed of British men to keep law and order there. And this was there was already a Palestine gendarmerie, this was a British officer force, but it was locally recruited, made up, there was an Arab and a Jewish section. But it decided that they needed a purely British section of this. So this coincided with the disbandment of the RIC. So it was Churchill decided that this new British section of the Palestine gendarmerie would be recruited from RIC sources. So this force was ultimately 760 strong. There were about 720 rankers and 40 or so officers. And in the event, 96% of those were recruited from the RIC, mainly the Black and Tans and Auxiliaries. Only about 85 of this 760 were from the old RIC. The rest of them were disbanded Black and Tans and Auxiliaries. So they joined the new force. They were recruited in Britain and they were transferred out to Palestine in April of 1922. And I should say 38% of those were Irishmen, either Black and Tans, Auxiliaries, or Old RIC. Were they all ex-RIC, or did you have any other Irishmen joining that, say, ex-IRA, or any Irishmen, for that matter, at all, given that there was well, such but- poor economic circumstances in Ireland? Yeah, not really. Again, 38% of the force was Irish. That created 260 people. Almost all of them were ex-RIC because it was it was specifically recruited. It was always the plan to recruit from the RIC, and that's what was done. Now, there were a few 
others in it, 10 or 15. Some of them had been in, were demoralised British soldiers or Irish members of the British Army. Nobody else in that first draft. Because this force, they were recruited on a one-year contract in 1922. So of that initial force, essentially, it was all RIC. There was certainly no IRE in that. Now, th- there were problems with the force. Uh, in Palestine, and about half of that 760 people resigned uh, after the end of the the contract. It was a rolling contract, but they chose not to renew it in 1923, and they resigned. So there was a new draft recruited for the force in Britain of 339 people. Now, nine of those were Irish people. I have traced about four of them. They weren't in the IRA. This idea that some of them might might have been in the IRA, I think that came from, there was an article in the Freeman's Journal published in June of 1923, and in it, a, a member of this force says that, oh, you know, I'm part of this British Gendarmerie, it's mostly RIC, but it includes also members of the IRA, I think he called them Javelier as own, and, and he said it included a man who was present at Bay in the Blaw when Mike Collins was shot, but I just don't think that's true. Again, of the I've looked, it could only be, if there was somebody, for instance, who was at Bail of Law, he has to be one of these nine Irishmen recruited in 1923, and at this stage, that doesn't even look like it could be possible. So, essentially, they were, any of the Irish who went to this force, bar 10 or 15 at the beginning, were members of the, ex-members of the RIC. Right, okay. I suppose that puts it to bed then. Yeah, pretty much. I think it's just one of these stories that circulated. It was a good story. Yeah. And it appears then in various things you read, but really I don't think there's any truth in it. So what was the role of this new Palestinian police force? What did they do? Why did the British service need a special crack troop of British and Irish men? Why couldn't they just recruit locally? Well... They needed it again because of basically the emergence of, I wouldn't call it sustained, but certainly of a more significant anti-Zionist agitation in Palestine from 1920 onwards. Now, there were two police forces there operating uh, at the time from 1920. There was the Palestine Police and the Palestine Gendarmerie. Both of them were locally recruited from amongst the Arab and Jewish populations, but they were officered by British now, when the, there were significant anti-Zionist riots in April 1920 and in May 1921, during which there were several deaths and countless injuries, uh, in 1921 the rioting went on for a week. And what happened then was that the police sent in to try and quell the rioting ended up, the, the Arab members of the police ended up joining in, as did the Jewish police on, on their co-religionist sides as well. So basically, the British, what, what happened was there was a failure of the police force. People sided with their own side when it came to intercommunal conflict. So Britain decided that what they needed was a purely British force rather than another force that was British officer but locally recruited. You could only really trust British men, impartial, non-partisan British policemen in this situation. So this is where the idea for the British Gendarmerie came out of. In terms of its character, again, it was one of these forces that 
was supposed to be civil, and this caused problems, was supposed to be a civil force under the direction of the Palestine government, and by extension the colonial office, but it was essentially a paramilitary force. It was very much like the auxiliary division. It was a striking force and riot squad, very well armed, highly mobile, uh, broken into companies. There were 700 members broken into seven companies, 100 men strong. They were based in urban areas and they patrolled the countryside from there. They also were involved in not just in quelling any kind of disturbances in the towns, but also they were designed to tackle brigandage, which was a big problem in Palestine since the Ottoman times. This is like highway robbery, banditry, this kind of thing. But this also, by 1920, started to develop political overtones. So whereas the British first were dismissing them as just as brigands and outlaws and highwaymen, by 1922, they were seeing that they were describing it as political brigandage, that a lot of it was motivated by resentment at Europeans because of the Jewish national home policy. So the British Gendarmerie was basically recruited as an, an impartial, non-partisan British crack squad to try and maintain law and order and public security in Palestine because of the failure of the locally recruited forces. And who was their GOC? Who was the inspector of police? Well, that's interesting. The inspector, the overall inspector of police was Tudor himself, Hugh Tudor, who'd been the chief of police in Ireland. Then he came over, he was brought over here in May 1920 by his friend Churchill. He met. He was a lifelong soldier, Tudor. He had gone to Woolwich in 1888. He spent about 10 years in India then. That's where he met Churchill. Then he served in South Africa. He was badly wounded in the Boer War. Then the First World War. He was commander of the 9th Scottish Division. And then afterwards, he was looking for a job and Churchill gave him Ireland. When he finished in Ireland in 1922, he was again looking for a job and Churchill gave him Palestine. Churchill had been considering him for GOC in Palestine, but he, when he decided to form this British Gendarmerie, he intended that most public security duties would be assigned to this. This was a civil force. So he made Tudor chief of police as well. So Tudor basically had a dual civil and military role. He was GOC and inspector of police and prisons. He was appointed to that post in February of 1922, and he assumed it in June of 1922, again, at Churchill's instigation. There was a lot of talk that it was basically a job for the boy. But when you look at the correspondence, the colonial colonial office correspondence on Tudor's appointment, it's obvious that they actually thought he was the best man for the job. It wasn't just that he was shunted in by Churchill over the heads of people who thought he wasn't suitable. They all seemed to think he had a lot of policing experience from Ireland. He had obviously lifelong military experience. He also spoke Arabic. He'd been stationed in Egypt at certain times in his military career and he'd learned Arabic. And he also, of course, knew the British Gendarmerie who were being sent out there because he'd been chief the RIC in Ireland. So he was seen as the perfect man for the job. Now, it didn't work out that way, but he was essentially in charge of them in 1922. Right. That's really interesting. So you have Tudor out there. You have hundreds of XRIC and black and tans out there. So it kind of begs the question, did they learn anything from Ireland and apply it to Palestine or not? 
the sending out of the British Gendarmerie showed that lessons were learned in some ways. For instance, like in 1919 here, the reason that the insurgency developed, you know, from the middle of 1919 and through 1920 was kind of an official reluctance to treat it as such. You know, that it was, you know, corner boys and murder gangs and assassins. It was basically a criminal conspiracy. I think that they learned this lesson in 1922 in Palestine by deploying the British Gendarmerie in the first place, because by sending out the British Gendarmerie, they were basically treating the anti-Zionist agitation that was pretty sporadic and acephalous in 1920 and 21, but they were treating it like a proto-insurgency, which needed to be clamped down on quickly and robustly so that it wouldn't, you wouldn't have a repeat of what happened in Ireland. The other lesson learned from Ireland was that they were kept, the British Army were kept on a pretty short leash. When they were recruited in Britain, they were sent to a place in Devonport, an old Napoleonic era fort called Fort Trigantle, and they were assembled there for training and to be transported onwards to Palestine. And there were a lot of problems with discipline there, drunkenness and insubordination and everything that goes with basically, you know, over consumption of alcohol in four settings. And it also started in Palestine. In the early months in Palestine, there, were a lot, there was a lot of trouble with this. So having learned the lessons of Ireland, this was clamped down on almost immediately. And by the summer of 1920, these disciplinary problems were gone. The other lesson I think learned from Ireland in this context was there were no reprisals in Palestine. They clamped down on outbreaks of anti-Zionist agitation or any sort of public disturbances very hard, but they didn't actually engage in collective punishment. Even when gendarmes were killed, say, for instance, in 1923, three gendarmes were ambushed up in Matullah, which is up in the north of what's the north of Palestine, north of Israel today, were killed there. And the reprisals for things like that focused on the perpetrators. The gangs were hunted down, but there was no wider retaliation against the, the communities from which they came, of the Arab population in general. So I think that was definitely a lesson learned, because again, Palestine was very much on the radar of the international press because of Zionism, because of the Jewish National Home and so on. Events there were widely reported. And I think that Churchill and Tudor had learned the lesson of, you know, of the PR disaster that was Ireland in that respect. So there were no reprisals. But it's important to remember, though, that Palestine in 1922 and up to 1926, when the British Gendarmerie was disbanded, wasn't really anything like Ireland at all, mainly because the British Gendarmerie clamped down on public order pretty quickly. And they also brought with them a reputation for black and tannery from Ireland. I mean, there was great fear in the population when they heard that the black and tans, as they thought, were being redeployed to Palestine. So between that and between the manner in which they clamped down on the disturbances, the public order disturbances and rioting that happened, between that, they basically ensured that there was peace in Palestine for the four years they were there. Uh, Tudor actually called Palestine a rest cure after his Irish experience. So there were lessons learned, but again, because they were implemented very quickly, the situation didn't evolve like Ireland at all. 
later, though, when there was a revolt against the British mandate in 1936 by the Arab population and then by the Jewish population, the Zionists in the 1940s, then you see that basically the lessons of Ireland didn't seem to be learned at all. I mean, some theories about colonial policing talk about the transfer of an institutional memory from Ireland across, you know, various colonies through the movement of XRIC and again, this institutional memory, this sort of what the lessons, counterinsurgency lessons learned and how this is transplanted. But in Palestine, in my opinion anyway, both during the two insurgencies, two nationalist insurgencies that uh, Palestine police faced in during the period of the mandate in the 30s and 40s, that basically the mistakes of Ireland were repeated. There didn't seem to be any lessons learned at all. Right. I did my th- master's thesis. It was a comparative study of Bernard Montgomery's counterinsurgencies or imperial policing in Ireland during the War of Independence and in the Arab Revolt in 1936. Looking at that, I kind of figured that at the start of the War of Independence, I think the paraphrase is quote, he was like, I don't care how many shinners I have to kill. But by the end of it, he kind of realized that it was a political force and uh, needed to be solved politically and not militarily. But when I looked at the Arab Revolt, when you mentioned the word brigandry, it came flooding back to me because that's all he ever considered that. And so it was kind of interesting to see that certainly in the later Arab revolt, they didn't learn yeah. anything at all. No, and I mean, from the, this was from the beginning. You know, the, the Arab revolt started with a strike and attendant violence in April of 1936. There was a, a lull in October 1936 when the Royal Commission was set up to look into the problems. It resumed again in September 1937 went on until the summer of 1939. Now, there was a failure from the beginning to conceptualise it as a revolt. Again, it's the same, you see the same language, you're, sorry, you read the same language as, as you read about Ireland, that this, uh, these were bandits, gangsters, highwaymen, you know, in the same way that the Irish Sinn Féiners, as they call them, were a murder gang and corner boys and assassins. They basically didn't conceptualise it as a kind of a nationalist insurgency in Palestine at all. And Montgomery is interesting because by the t- he arrived like in late 1938. Now at that stage, even the hardline High Commissioner, Sir Harold MacMichael, was talking about a kind of a national revolt. But Montgomery decided that all he was seeing was it was common crime. It was a series of kind of you know bandit raids or something like that. Even as late, like this is literally months before it finished, Montgomery was not conceptualising it as an insurgency, as a nationalist insurgency. And there were basically two reasons for that. First, they didn't, many of the British just didn't think that the Arabs had the developed national consciousness to actually be running an insurgency like that. And the violence was not, wasn't sustained in the way that they would understand it. But you could say that it wasn't here either. But also there was a lot of internecine strife between the Arabs as well. Like at least half of the Arabs killed during the Arab revolt were killed by other Arabs. So they didn't conceptualise this as a nationalist insurgency at all. And this basically, Montgomery was was instrumental in that sort of thinking um, persisting throughout. Right. I'm probably going to upset a lot of people by saying this, but once again, Bernard Montgomery gets the situation wrong. Yeah, the whole approach to the Arab revolt, you know, basically mirrored what happened in Ireland, even though 
it had patently failed in Ireland. I mean, there wasn't just this reluctance or refusal to, or failure to conceptualise it as a revolt, but the response was basically to militarise the repeat. Because it wasn't considered a revolt or a war, again, it was seen as common crime, so the police were sent out as the front line, as it happened here in Ireland. When again, like the RIC, the the British police at that stage had been largely civilianised. The gendarmerie was disbanded in 1926, basically as a cost-cutting exercise, and a new force, there was a new British section to the Palestine police set up. Again, the Palestine police was, since 1920, British officered and locally recruited from amongst the Arab and Jewish populations. But they set up this new British section in 1926, and they were basically a crack squad in the beginning, but in 1930, they were basically a process of civilianisation started. Sir Herbert Dowdigan, an imperial policing expert, was called in to try and make it a civil police force and strip it of its paramilitary function. And by 1936, this was some way to being achieved. So when the revolt started and the police were sent out, they were they had no counterinsurgency capabilities at all, or very very little skill in that department. And and they continued to form the front line until the middle of 1938. Eventually, the army were put in control. But for the first two years, it was basically, again, like in Ireland, seen as a police problem and that had to be dealt with by a police force that were completely ill-suited to the task. And the answer then was seen as militarising police. Again, they got another imperial policing expert, actually an Irishman, Charles Chigert. He was brought in in 1937 to try and reformulate the police response to this insurgency. And his idea was to recruit vast numbers, nearly 2,000 ex-servicemen or serving members of the British Army because he felt that what was needed was not the civilian police force that was in existence at that stage, but a sort of a militarised police force, like a gendarmerie. He said it needed as being who could bring the fight to the enemy knew just as much of the ruffle tumble of an insurgency as the the people who were rebelling themselves. And of course, this didn't work either. About 2,000 of these men were recruited. And again, they had, like a black and tan, very little training, were sent out in the field. And this just resulted again in atrocities and reprisals, collective punishments, and the sort of stuff we saw in Ireland, because militarising the police wasn't really what was needed. So... Far from lessons of Ireland being learned during the Arab Revolt, it seems to me that the British just repeated all of the same mistakes again. Of this new British section that set up post-1926 or 1926 and then afterwards, you said they were looking for 2,000 ex-British military servicemen. How many of those were Irish? Well, it, it, it was set up as a 220 strong crack squad in 1926 and again it was supposed to it was attached to the Palestine police and it was supposed to just be called out as an emergency it was an emergency reserve called out if there was some sort of an incident but there were serious anti-Zionist rioting in August of 1929 and the British police and the main body of the Palestine police just proved completely incapable of dealing with it so it was decided that the force needed to be beefed up they recruited more, about six or 700 strong by the time the Arab Revolt broke out in 1936. Then Tigre decided that it needed to be strengthened even more with these rough types from the army. So they brought in another 1,800 to 2,000. 
and about 2,000 of these were Irishmen. Mainly, again, most of these recruits, this 2,000-strong uh, body of recruits, was taken from the British Army. They were either demobilised members, ex-servicemen, or else they were serving members. And as I said, yeah, about 200, about 10%, 11% of those were Irishmen. Okay. About 10 or 11%. I mean, there were between 1,800 and 2,000 of these recruited, and about 200 were Irish. So this new British section finally is bumped up in its numbers and they have to deal with the nationalist surgencies in Palestine uh, in 1936 to 1939. Are they around for the Zionist insurgencies in 1944? Yeah, some are. Again, they were recruited on two-year contracts, uh, most of them, in 1938 and 1939. So they, they served through the latter stage of the Arab revolt. When the war broke out, though, in uh, September, or sorry, when Britain entered the war in September of 1939, huge numbers of these, of this, a huge percentage of this 2,000, 1,800 to 2,000 strong force of, of recruits wanted to rejoin the colours because they felt that the Arab insurgency had been defeated. It was basically crushed by the summer of 1939. But they felt that they could, they would be better use or better serve their country or what have you if they rejoined the army and then fought the Germans. Now, the Palestine police realised that they were going to lose about half their strength. They put in place measures to keep, to retain them. So they were basically retained for the duration of the war. Now, this caused huge anger. People started refusing to serve in the police so that they would be automatically dismissed. The Palestine police countered that by imprisoning them for various lengths. First, in the, in the, in, by the end of 1940, if you refused to serve, you were imprisoned in Palestine for 18 months before you were dismissed. So that, that kind of quelled it. But um, at the end of the war, most of these men left. They'd been waiting to do so since 1939, so they left. So of the 200 Irishmen who joined in, during the Arab Revolt in 38-39, most of those left as soon as they could in 1934. Some of them had made representations in 1939 and 1940 saying that they should be let go because they were citizens of the Irish Free State. They were in a neutral country and they couldn't be retained in Palestine, being made, you know, being coerced into being retained as members of a British force. But all those arguments were thrown out. So most of those left straight after the war. So they weren't there when the Zionist insurgency kind of ramped up. Now, that had been kind of going on in fits and starts since, since 1939, 1940. It intensified in, nine, in 1944, in February 1944, because one of the main militant groups, the Irgun, had called off its fight against the British for the duration of the war. You know, that they needed to support Britain in fighting the greater enemy of Nazism. But they, it was obvious that the way the war was going to turn out by the end of 1943. So they resumed their campaign in 1944. In February, they declared a revolt. So this then went on, this just intensified, uh, culminating then in the foundation of Israel in 1948. But while the... 200 or so Irishmen who were recruited as part of the police response to the Arab revolt, while most of those had gone by 1945, 
more Irishmen, Irishmen were involved in the police insurgency against the Zionist insurgency because a recruitment drive was instituted in 1945 and 1946 in Britain and Ireland. And as a result of that, about 550 Irishmen joined the Palestine police. Now that's Irishmen north and south, but 70% of them were from from the, the 26 counties. So there was a huge Irish presence in the Palestine police during the Zionist insurgency, but most of them were new, newly recruited, again, as part of the police response to that insurgency. So with these 500-plus Irishmen in the Palestinian police force, is the reputation of the Black and Tans still there, or has that gone by that stage? Yeah, the reputation was still there, in the sense that it was sort of remanufactured. I mean, when the British Gendarmerie was formed in 1922, this black and tan reputation was a huge thing because, again, what had happened in Ireland was widely reported in Palestine and the papers there during 1920 and 21. So uh, the British tried to downplay in Palestine first the fact that this new police force was being recruited from the black and tans because they were afraid that it would be discredited from the outset because of the reputation of the Black and Tan. That didn't happen. I mean, everybody knew that these men had been members of the RIC and Tudor was at the helm. So any efforts that were made in early 1922 to conceal the fact that this was a force in the RIC had gone. And this reputation sort of followed them up. Now, in terms of manpower, by, by 1945, or 1944-45, when the Zionist intent insurgency intensified, there were only about 20, 25 XRIC left in the fall. Most had gone just through natural wastage, resigned or retired or what have you. But a little bit of the black and tan stigma still attached to it. And this was played up by the Zionist side. And particularly in the American papers, you see a lot of references to the black and tan nature of the Palestine police, because like in Ireland in 1919 and in Palestine in 1936, the Palestine police again were sent out to form the first line against the Zionist insurgency. Again, lessons not learned, mistakes replicated. So a civil, essentially civil police force sent out to counter uh, this insurgency. And they were targeted, they were specifically targeted in the way the RIC were as well. So they were doubly jeopardised in that sense, being sent out as the front line, but also uh, targeted. Even if they hadn't been sent out, they were seen as this kind of soft underbelly of imperial defence. So they were targeted by the insurgents. Um, so it served the, the Zionist purposes to the insurgents' purposes to paint the police force as black and tan. And Menachem Begin, who then he became Prime Minister of Israel in in later years, but he was in charge he was head of the Urgon, uh, one of the main uh, Zionist insurgent groups, and he again started to demonize the Palestine police as black and tan. He called them the British Gestapo in Palestine. He said he had respect for the British army that was stationed there, but not for the police. So the stigma, the black and tan stigma, sort of reattached to them in a way that hadn't been the case since the 1920s. But again, it was deliberately manufactured to delegitimize the police force there. 
that's really interesting that they they repackaged it. Yeah, I mean, uh, in the House of Commons, the Colonial Secretary had to actually deny there were all these again, like in the Arab Revolt, the term black and tan came up a lot. Even Harold MacMichael, who was the High Commissioner during the Arab Revolt, he started talking about black and tan tendencies within the police. When atrocities were committed, they were immediately linked back to the black and tan because. This had been the original, you know, the RIC had been the original parent force, if you like, even though in terms of manpower, <clears throat> by the time of the Arab Revolt, there were only about 45 ex-RIC left in it. But again, the same during the Zionist insurgency in the mid to late 1940s. Whenever atrocities were committed, now, it, there were far less kind of police reprisals and, you know, extrajudicial killings and stuff going on in the, during the Zionist insurgency because the political superstructure was it was completely different. But when these events when these events did occur, they were described black and tannery. The link was made. So in 1946, the colonial secretary had to actually stand up in the Commons and deny that there was, you know, black and tannery was going on in Palestine. And in this recruitment drive in 1945-1946 in Ireland, I can't imagine that a large number of those Irishmen who served were ex or IC. So what were the reasons for them joining? Were they purely economical or like anything, it's hard to say with such a large number of people? Yeah. No, there wouldn't have been any RIC. Not that I'm aware of. I mean, it would have been too old. I mean, mm-hmm. there was a, the, the age limit for recruitment to the Palestine police was something like 18 to 21 or 22. Now, it was wasn't strictly observed, but you couldn't join the Palestine Police in 1945 or 1946 as a 40-year-old. So there weren't any RIC, newly recruited ex-RIC in it. Most of them were just, again, ordinary, ordinary guys. There was a, a, quite a cohort of the Irish, maybe 20% had served in the British Army during the war, the Second World War, that is. So they were demobilised and were looking for employment. 17% of them had served in the Irish army during the war. And they, they felt that they hadn't had a war, if you like, because of the situation, the, the emergency, you know, the jobs they were given to do here in Ireland. So they had joined the Irish army in search of adventure, which hadn't been fulfilled, a sense of adventure, which hadn't really been fulfilled in Ireland during the emergency. So they then went to Palestine uh, looking for a bit of a bit of adventure. But in broad terms, the reasons that, that people joined were, yeah, economic, people looking for money, for pay, sense of adventure. There was endo recruitment. Again, a lot of these guys would have had, came from family traditions of British service, mainly military, sometimes in the police, you know, fathers who fought in the First World War or grandfathers or other relations, you know, just traditions of, of British kind of military or police service. Some, a small number, I, I interviewed, I think, 17 now of these guys, and a couple of them had sort of residual imperial loyalties themselves. Like, they, they didn't have a family. Like, one guy's father was actually in the IRA in 1920-21. He himself was very much, he felt, a, a British loyalist. And when he was too young to serve in the Second World War, serve for Britain in the Second World War, he decided the next best thing to kind of support the empire was to join the Palestine police. They had a few doing that. She also had the usual family reasons, people trying to get out of situations they didn't like at home. Some guys 
wanted saw it as a route out of Ireland that they thought socially repressed them. But there were all kinds of reasons for which for which people joined. Just to go back to the army stuff, the British Army, the Irish Army recruit, there were a small number, about ten, who joined the Palestine police at this time were people who were subject to that EPO three sixty two. These were guys who had deserted the Irish Army to join the British Army. Oh, very interesting. And then well, there were only a small number now. I counted about 10 or 15 off the list. But these were men then who'd obviously come back from service in the British Army during the World War, but were now being discriminated against because of that. They were, some of them were detained in the Curra. They lost some pension and gratuity entitlement. Uh, they couldn't serve in an Irish government employment for a period of seven years or so on. So some of them went to Palestine as well. That's really interesting. Do you see kind of a cyclical event here where we have ordinary English guys signing up for economic reasons to repress a national insurgency in a different country, the Black and Tans in the first case from England, and then 20 years later you have Irishmen doing the exact same thing? I suppose you could argue that. I mean, most of the Irish people, and even the British, join these forces. Say, for instance, say we'll take the Zionist insurgency because the recruitment drive, there was an enormous recruitment drive in 1945 and 46 in Britain and Ireland. Most of the people, both Irish and British, who signed up for the Palestine police didn't see them, you know, like one or two, possibly, and I did mention the, the one Irish guy, who did see them, who did feel that they were going to defend the empire against a threat. But most of them joined for all sorts of other reasons. As regards the British in 1945-46, a lot of those who joined were very young. You were offered, there was national service was brought in after the war, um, which was three years, I think you had to do with national service, which you could do two years in the Palestine police instead. So a lot of them joined you know, to do to have a year of national service less than they would have had if they did it in Britain. A lot of them were recruited straight from school. They went around to the schools recruiting uh, for the Palestine police um, in Britain at the time. So a lot of these guys wouldn't have really, didn't even know what they were getting themselves in for. And that comes across quite strongly in the Irish testimony. Because in addition to the 17 men that I interviewed, I interviewed about the families of about 40 or 50 others and then you've got other testimonies. There are some interviews, published memoirs, stuff like that. Most of them had no idea what they were getting themselves into at all. They left. They joined the Palestine police for their own personal reasons, but they didn't really have any sense of what they were letting themselves in for when they went. So they were recruited. Again, young British and Irish people to suppress an insurgency, an anti-colonial insurgency, but that wasn't on the radar for most of them in, in joining. It wasn't, it didn't even figure, you know, as one of the factors in their decision to join, you know, that they were defending the empire or what have you. So in 1948, Israel becomes its own country. So the Palestinian police, are they disbanded or what happened to those? Yeah. In September 47, Britain had had enough and they decided they were handing 
the problem of Palestine over to the United Nations and they were leaving effective. Uh, the mandate would end effective from the 15th of May 1948. So in consequence of that, the Palestine police was to be disbanded and that started uh, in January of 1948. The processes, the processes were put in place for that. So basically at that stage there were over 4,000 men in the Palestine police, including maybe six to 700 Irish, because in Apart from the 550 or so that were recruited after the war, you had some that had remained from previous times. Some were there since 1926, others had been recruited in the aftermath of the, the 1929 anti-Zionist disturbances, and some residual number from the Arab revolt. You had between 650, 700 Irishmen there. So they all were looking for jobs. And again, what comes through in the testimonies is that a lot of those recruited in 1945 and 46 thought they were embarking on a career in colonial policing. They weren't expecting that the job would be all over, you know, in two years or a year. So a lot of them wanted to remain in policing, and a lot of them did. In February of 1948, the British police forces, you know, the constabularies of, of, of Britain, sent representatives over to Palestine to recruit directly there. So a couple of hundred Irish men signed up for the British Constabulary uh, in Palestine in February of 48 and then joined them when they were eventually disbanded in April and May of 1948, mostly to the London Metropolitan Police. Some of them stayed in colonial policing. Again, colonial police services uh, in the after the war, most of them were looking for men because of natural wastage. Again, most of these forces had retained their British components for the duration of the war and then people wanted to leave afterwards. A lot of people stay in places that the Japanese had occupied had been killed. So the colonial police forces were looking for men, and Irish men were amongst those who joined. About 130 of the disbanded Irish Palestine policemen uh, went on to other colonial police forces in 1948. About 40 went to Africa, talking about the colonial police forces in places like Uganda and Kenya and Nigeria. 18, I think, I counted, went to the Hong Kong police. Smaller numbers then to the Caribbean, some of the other islands there, and to Cyprus. And four remained in Israel. They stayed on the kind of security force with the British consular services there. British consular police, they were called. But they stayed there. Most of that 130, though, uh, about 50 of those went to Malaya, because in June of 1948, literally just after the end of the mandate, an emergency was declared there by the British, again, Malaya was a British colony. There was a communist insurgency which on, went on for about 10 years. About 550 Palestine policemen transferred to the Malayan police forces in 1948, and again, as I said, uh, 50 of those were Irish. That's where the main component of the Irish who remained in colonial policing went to Malaya. Others then came back to Ireland, you know, again, Difficult to trace people who didn't remain in the colonies, but again, I've tried to do it through uh, records of births and marriages. You see a lot returning to Ireland, a lot to Britain. Uh, as I said, some did join the Constabularies of Britain and joined in Palestine and went there after May 48. But a couple of, at least a hundred others just went to Britain, returned to Britain rather than to Ireland and just took jobs there in various, various fields. Right, wow. So they really just spread out all over the empire. Yeah. The Irish colonial policing 
just one part of the Irish engagement with civil imperial service since mid-1800s. I know we kind of touched on that a little bit, but would you like to get into that a bit more? Yeah, the, the Irishmen who served, who, who after Palestine, they went to the 130 of them, whatever, went to join other colonial police forces. This was part of a tradition of Irish participation in colonial police forces that, that was 100 years old at this stage. Because the RIC had been a central influence in terms of its model of policing and in terms of manpower for the colonial police forces since the mid 19th century. As early as 1843, RIC men were being seconded out to India to help uh, institute police forces there. Same in the Caribbean in the 1860s, 1870s, 1880s, Jamaica and Trinidad, XRIC were uh, seconded out there to form or to stiffen the police forces. The same in the Far East, Hong Kong, the Strait Settlement, Malaya and in East Africa. And in Shanghai, which wasn't officially a colony, but was essentially run like a colony, the British uh, part of the Shanghai International Settlement. So up until about 1922, about 350 XRIC or serving RIC had gone out and worked in colonial police. Also, a lot of non-RIC had gone out as well. And this continued after 1922. And my point is that, you know, those who went out after Palestine to Malaya and East Africa... They were basically the tail end of a hundred-year uh, tradition of this. But the Irish service in the colonial police forces itself was only part of a wider engagement with, colon- with civilian imperial service. As I said at the beginning, Irish men and laterally Irish women had been serving in uh, other colonial services. Like British colonial service consisted of services like medical service, engineering, legal and administrative, uh, educational and there were other forestry and so on. And Irish men and women served in those after 1922, right up until the colonial office was closed in 1966. So Irish involvement in colonial policing through Palestine and afterwards was one part of Irish civilian so imperial service in the hundred years, shall we say, uh, prior to the end of the empire, which was for convenience date to 1966. That's really interesting that so many of them went out to the Caribbean. Yeah, the, the police forces there, there were, there were trouble there in the, say, starting in the 1860s. Again, what you're seeing is kind of anti-colonial agitation. And as in Palestine, you know, once you start having kind of political disturbances, there's a, a, a commensurate increase in ordinary crime as well. So in places like Trinidad and Jamaica... What the security services proved inadequate to the task they faced. So these, the, the, administ- the British administrations in places like Trinidad and Jamaica then looked to the RIC as a model for a police force that they could use to kind of, to maintain law and order, to preserve public security. So they deliberately modeled their police forces on the RIC and as part of that process, they recruited ex-RIC to go out as officers and to oversee the administration and the training of the force there. So that was something that started again in, that in India, in the, the first example we have is 1843 in Sindh. So that was kind of a commonplace throughout the latter half of the 19th century, where colonial police forces looked to the RIC rather than the constabularies of Britain as the models for their own colonial police forces. Because again, the RIC was, cent- was centralised, was responsible to the government, was paramilitary in character, 
and basically could be used as a coercive arm in the way that a civilian constabulary like they had in Britain at the time could not be used. Do you think the reason why there's so little known about the Irish involvement in the British Imperial Service is because there's such a bad taste left in our mouth and that was seen in January of this year's RIC commemorations blowback. Yeah, it, it's an interesting point because Irish, and I'm talking about civilian imperial service, I mean, the, the history of Irish involvement in the, on the military side in the service of the empire is well documented and well acknowledged and well known. Um, so I'm talking about specifically kind of civilian imperial service. That really isn't much talked about, and again, in, after 1922, because I don't think it fits in with the kind of traditional nationalist narrative that the Irish are inherently anti-imperial and uh, against the empire, and this doesn't, this doesn't fit in nicely with that theory, the fact that, and we're not talking about huge numbers either, the imperial services weren't that big, but you're talking about several thousand between the police a couple of thousand between the police and the other services. And the idea that Irish people will go out there to serve the empire in these capacities is seen as something that's kind of un-Irish and it's just, it's basically been buried or ignored. The interesting thing about it, though, is that at the time, it wasn't really controversial at all. And that was one of the things that surprised me most about my research, starting with the Palestine police and then moving on to the wider imperial services, is that at the time, this didn't seem to be a controversial issue at all. Of course, there was controversy on the Republican fringe and objections in the in the kind of Republican, the radical press and stuff like that. You know, that these were imperialist lackeys doing jobs no Irish men or women should do. But within wider society, there was very little controversy at all. I mean, when you, when you look back, the local press is quite instructive in this respect, the regional press. If you go back to the regional press uh, from, say, we'll talk about the Palestine police in particular, when you see these people going in 1946, 1947, there are, you know, little articles in the local press about, oh, Johnny is going off to Palestine, we wish him luck, this, that, and the other. Then some of them publishing letters that Johnny wrote home about his experience in Palestine. In the wider colonial service, because there was, again, a big recruitment drive in the wider colonial service after the war, because, again, there was these services were expanded and they needed to be filled. And, you know, you've got kind of, I remember people going to the engineering service, having dances for them, you know, kind of social functions to see them off. You needed references when you applied to the colonial service. And these were supplied by, you know, the Catholic clergy, people in local administration, politicians, you know, just the kind of the pillars of Southern Irish society, if you like, were giving references to go. So there was very little of the controversy that seems to have attached to it later. Now, I don't have data, and I, I'm assuming that the turnaround would have happened with the Troubles in Northern Ireland, where suddenly, you know, service, imperial service was seen as a bad thing, something that wasn't to be mentioned if your family had been involved in it. But at that time, from the 20s up until the 50s, there doesn't seem to be that stigma at all. Like, again, if you look at the papers, People are almost celebrating the fact that someone in the locality is going off to take one of these jobs. As regards to the RIC, 
I think they're still in a class of their own, you know, when it comes to imperial service, if you like, if, if that's what you want to call RIC service. They were the main losers of the War of Independence in terms of reputation and legacy, I think. The, the demonization that was instituted with the, with the Sinn Féin, with the boycott, and the way that that went on through 1919, 1920, and 1921, that really made them, uh, pushed them apart from the people, I think, and that was then exacerbated to the nth degree by their association with the black and tan atrocities, their own atrocities, of course, and the auxiliary division. The whole, the, the atrocities of the police counterinsurgency stained them indelibly as well. So then where, when you come to the, the commemoration, this was seen as something that, you know, couldn't happen. The interesting thing about the commemoration was that a lot of the stuff, people were talking about, you know, they weren't going to commemorate the Black and Tans and Auxiliary, but most of the stuff I read really could only relate to the old RIC. An English Black and Tan can't be a traitor to his country by serving in Ireland. All the stuff about being traitors and, and imperial lackeys and the rest of it could only really apply to the old RIC. So there is seen today in a way that the Irishmen who serve in the British Army are they're seen as, as being the instruments of the suppression of, no, of Irish nationalism during the War of Independence in a way that the British Army isn't. I mean, we did have a commemoration for Irishmen, for, for British Army personnel who were killed in 1916 without country. Yes, the RIC are seen as beyond the pale. And again, that's, I think that's what it comes to. That's why I think they were the main losers. Even a hundred years later, the reputational damage inflicted on the board by the boycott and by black and tannery, that hasn't been repaired in any way, it seems to me. That's yeah, quite a good point. What do you I mean? I, I've interviewed uh, a lot of, um, I can't think of the exact figure, but we're talking about dozens of families of RIC. Uh, both here and in Britain, as part of my research on the gendarmerie and then wider research on the RIC. And, like, the trauma is still with some of them. Like, we're hearing a lot more now about the intergenerational trauma that was caused by by the atrocities that were committed against the Irish population by the police and the army in, during the war of independence and again in the civil war. This is becoming a big thing now. But the same can be applied to RIC families. I mean, I, I met a couple of children, so like, you know, daughters or sons, not many now, but they could would still get tearful talking about the boycott. It, and they wouldn't remember the boycott. Like the, the, it didn't just stop in 1922. Now, most RIC did settle in, to settle into the communities in which they lived pretty easily, but some didn't. And especially those who went to England, their last memory of Ireland were, were the very bad times, the spring of 1922, when the RIC was still being vilified and so on. And that is the impression that they, were, that they took with them. And there, there does seem to me that this idea of intergenerational trauma, trauma being passed down in families, applies equally to some RIC families as it does to families of victims of the RIC. That's interesting to look at it from their point of view. Well, the, the people who see themselves stripped of everything and driven out of their country. There was a, there were there were expulsions here in 1922 of RIC. Um, 
localised mainly, not a national campaign. So to the RIC themselves, it gave the appearance of some sort of a national campaign. You know, you basically were getting notices quit your property within 48 hours or pay the consequence and stuff and about two or three thousand as I said left again I spoke earlier about the statistics on the database I'm compiling two and a half thousand or six and a half thousand were living in Britain or further overseas. now again a lot of them came back but a lot didn't so these are people who would have seen the, the family memory is of being run out of Ireland losing everything being run out of Ireland and not being able to return Right, yeah, that's a different way to look at it. With the backlash of the RIC and with the decade of centenaries currently ongoing in Ireland, what do you make of the state of history in Ireland right now? Do you think it's in a good place or a bad place? What do you think? I think in one sense history is in a good place. I mean, the public engagement with the decade of centenaries has been really heartening to see. And, you know, in the media as well, like most weeks, the papers will carry articles pertaining to some incident or something that happened before. And there's been huge engagement with it, both in the public and in the schools and so on. So my fear would be in the aftermath of that, is that the rest of the decade of centenaries that we're going to have to go, it's going to be the tradition, we're going to be going back to the traditional narrative of, of commemorating one side Whereas the war of independence involved, you know, Irishman against Irishman. There was a loyalist population here who supported the Crown, who were opposed to the Sinn Féin and the IRA movement, not just in the north of Ireland, which again was part of Ireland. Again, partitionist thing that they're not even included in discussion is so wrong. But there was a significant loyalist population. And then there were people who were placed on the loyalist side but by the situation, like the RIC, most of whom were Catholic, Redmondite home rulers, but were all placed on the loyalist side. So I think that after the way that went, that we might just be getting back to the pre-2016 position of just commemorating, you know, IRA or Sinn Féin victory. And that there's a whole other, there's a whole other part of the history of that period that needs to be acknowledged and remembered as well. Okay, so Sean, Gannon, where can anybody who's listened to this, where can they find you? Where can they get more access to your work? Um, I put most of my stuff on my academia page, so if you just Google my name, you'll find that. I have a lot of my articles up there, not book chapters, but published peer-reviewed articles and other other articles online there. My book is available through Amazon. Um, I'm working on a second book at the moment, but that won't be out for a couple of years yet. But essentially, most of what I have written is available online, either to read there or there'll be links to where you can, you can get it. And what's the name of that book again? My book published is called The Irish Imperial Service, Policing Palestine uh, and Administering the Empire, 1922 to 1926. And again, that basically looks at Irish involvement in the policing of the Palestine mandate. Then it broadens that out to colonial policing in general and then to imperial service more generally, again, in the post-independence period. Brilliant. Sean Gannon. 
Thank you so much. Thanks, David. And there you have it, folks. Sean Gannon and the Irish in the Palestinian Police Force and the Irish in the British Imperial Police Service. Pretty interesting stuff. I want to say thank you to Sean for allowing me to interview him. We had great crack talking back and forth. He's a really nice guy. I cannot recommend his book enough. It's eye-opening. Once again, thank you to everybody for becoming a sponsor. If you think that this podcast is worth three euro price of a cup of tea, head on over to Patreon forward slash the Irish at war and please donate. And lastly, happy Easter, everybody. Stay safe. Good luck.